Welcome to Shelter, a series of conversations about home, place, and refuge, from where we find it and how we choose it, or perhaps how it chooses us, to where it can be lost and what lies at the core of this human need. Building lives in a society that is more mobile and fluid, this show looks beyond conventional notions of home, revealing how one might find their sense of place in unexpected ways. I'm your host, Erin Sweeney. For this episode of Shelter, I traveled to Richmond, Virginia to talk shop with Emily Sarah, an artist and professor at Virginia Commonwealth University, as well as a healthcare advocate. I was drawn to her story as it related to healthcare, thinking about the challenges of negotiating the American system from state to state. For many years, Emily has navigated those waters as a woman with a complex medical history and a series of moves from coast to coast. And as you can imagine, there's a lot in such a story. So I've broken our interview into a three-part series to pay due respect to each part of the journey. And throughout the series, we talk about healthcare a lot. There's heartbreak, frustration, inspiration, and there are resources for those of you also trying to navigate the system. But even more, Emily's story is really about finding her center in a body that has not made it easy for her. To say she's comfortable in her own skin is a simplification, but she inhabits our most elemental structure in a way that, in my mind, is nothing less than revolutionary. So here we are. This is Emily. This is Erin. And this is your podcast. True, but this is your apartment. This is true. In Richmond, Virginia. Yes, that's correct. So, before we dive into Emily's story, a quick preview. Our interview is broken into three parts to be released over the course of the coming weeks. And here, in part one, Emily shares her early experiences with the discovery of a challenging medical situation and reveals the importance of a support system as well as a sense of humor in the process as she ventures out on her own and eventually finds her way to Los Angeles. A heads up that she also drops a few F-bombs in here, in case young children are listening. Today we are talking about healthcare. Yes. And the ways that Emily has encountered and I think persevered through different kinds of challenges in terms of securing the care that we need. I think a good place to start would be to talk a little bit about your early experiences? Sure. Very lucky. Grew up in, I like to say, south of Southie in Massachusetts. I had a mom and a dad and a sister. It's like a normal kid and everything. But as I grew into a preteen, I would say, so maybe around like sixth grade, started having a lot of pain in my face, which I feel like there's a joke there somewhere about like (laughs) something. And we also started noticing that half of my face was looking much different than one half to the other, right mm-hmm. to the left. And then as I got older, the discrepancies became even more apparent. And basically, one part of my face stopped growing or growing at a different rate than the other. And palate discrepancies, I had overbite, underbite, crossbite at the same time. And it wasn't apparent until in my really my preteen years, my features started like kind of just like shifting a lot. That was olive. So 
sorry. In sixth grade, they rebuilt my face because I was just having a lot of pain and because also they were like, truthfully, when you get older, it's gonna be really hard for you to get a job. You're gonna look really weird. And at that point you were, so you were like 11? That was sixth grade, seventh grade, eighth grade, and ninth grade that I had surgeries throughout then. But then after that, things were pretty great. Didn't have any massive pain issues that I really remember. Going back to the earlier time Mm -hmm. in terms of your experience, you know, you're going through a time that's very formative too, right? That's like puberty, that's Mm -hmm. entering high school. You're understanding your body a lot more, how you see yourself. And it was, it's probably not the greatest time to be really going through body image times and having to reconstruct that prosthetic like I have some prosthetics in my face half of my jaw is not real and my palate should be a lot more narrow than what it is Mm -hmm. so I don't think I would actually probably look what I look like now Mm -hmm. but yeah formative years for sure she's beautiful by the way (laughs) and during that time your first experiences too and being in the hospital and going through that because that's a lot to go through I said still young yeah, it was, it, but it was okay. It was, you know, I was extremely lucky. My mom is a rock. She brought me to all my appointments and was there sleeping overnight. Like, I have one story where we were in Children's Hospital in Boston. Mm-hmm. I couldn't get a hold of the nurse, and she was sleeping in a chair next to my bed. And I, poor woman, I was like, Mom, Mom, but my, my mouth was wired shut because I had just had surgery. And she was, like, sawing wood right next to me. I was like, mom, mom. And eventually I just took the ice pack that was on my face. I just like slapped her. And she was like, what? What? What's the matter? I was like, mom, I just need some more pain medication. She was like, oh, okay. No qualms about the fact that I just hit her. God knows where. Anyways, she's a saint. Like a modern day saint. After that, I sailed through high school. College was pretty great. Some like little things here and there, nothing compared to, I mean, it was like some pretty massive reconstructive surgery as a young child. Mm -hmm. It was in undergrad. I started getting a lot of foot, lower back, hip pain. And I know now that I have an issue with hyperflexibility in all of my joints, essentially. There's something wrong. No, I shouldn't say something wrong. Something irregular with my joints, meaning I get a lot more arthritis than a normal human being should get Mm. and at a much younger age what causes arthritis it's just a lot of movement in the joints if you're like a secretary you're probably going to have arthritis in your fingers and your wrists because you've been sitting and typing for a number of years a number of different industries like jackhammering you get Mm -hmm. a lot of arthritis and Mm. i mean pretty much everywhere actually because there's just like a lot of rapid movement so i just get a lot of arthritis in different joints and that was something that they thought maybe was connected to what had happened when you were younger yeah so it was most likely congenital meaning i was born with it after undergrad i had moved to new york city at that time Mm -hmm. so i went to undergrad in boston massachusetts Mm -hmm. at bu and then i moved to new york city was there for a while and was like started having a lot of pain which later on we figured out was arthritis in my hips it was getting very exacerbated in those particular regions for some reason do you think that it may have had to do with moving to new york and yeah walking so much honestly because i've never walked that much before in my life but it was great though it was like so amazing what time of year did you move to new york september what do you remember about your first weeks i got a pit bull pretty (laughs) 
soon after moving there because I was very lonely. <laughs> speaking, speaking of dogs, my puppy right now is barking. I will interject, um, and I'm sure this will come up as we continue to talk, but Emily, at the time when I met her, which is a number of years ago now, mm-hmm. she had this pit bull that she, <laughs> first, that she first got in New York, whose name was Zucchini. Unfortunately, Zucchini passed away. Yeah, a few months ago. And a deep animal lover and caretaker <laughs> at heart. Uh, she recently met Olive, yeah. who is still... Just shy of a year old. And a little special. Yes. You know how to pick them. She's wonderful, but yeah. So you're in New York. I'm in New York. You have zucchini. And I'm walking a lot. I'm working in Soho. I live on the... What are you doing in Soho? I work for a graphic design firm. I was there for maybe like a year and a half or something until I had to move home because I was just in so much excruciating pain. I couldn't walk to work anymore Mm. and I thought something was very wrong with me so what were you doing during that time like how would you get to work I had to take breaks on my way walking to the subway I would call my mom freaking out and I'm like I can't I can't get to work I don't know how to do this I went to some doctors and they took some x-rays and like, we don't see any fractures. If we can't see yeah, if you something can... that's indicative of it, then we don't know how to describe. Exactly. Did you feel like when you were trying to describe what was happening that they were... They were looking at me like I was crazy. Because I went to several doctors in, in New York, but I was also really young and I just didn't know how to navigate the healthcare system by myself then. Went to a doctor at Children's Hospital in Boston. Even though I was not a child, I still had prematurity for this, for something developing in Mm -hmm. my bones for my age. He did something called an osteotomy, which is a rotation of your femur. And he was like, no, you have arthritis. He's like, I don't know why, but I think that if we can try this and hopefully you won't have a hip replacement because you're really young to be getting a hip replacement. Why would you rotate the bone? So if you have like a certain part that's hitting where the socket and the bone has arthritis on it, you can rotate it. They can scratch off some of I mean, this is like a very layman's term of like mm-hmm. explaining this process. But well, layman's is good in this. Yeah. <laughs> so, Mainly for I mean, me. No, and for me probably. too. I mean, this is how he explained it to me because yeah. obviously I'm not a doctor. Right. Side note, I am not a doctor. <laughs> So osteotomy, went to grad school, got accepted to Cranbrook Academy of Art. Good place. Amazing. Met some really great people there. I bet. Yeah. (laughs) I moved there with Zucchini, lived in a little tiny house in Pontiac. How would you describe grad school? Do you want that to go on the record? I was going to say, how would you describe Pontiac? Pontiac was great. So I lived in New York City. It was a very stressful time in my life. I went, when I went back to Boston, I was having surgery. I took some night classes at Mass Art, but it was really hard for me to walk at the time. So going to Michigan, it was like much quieter. And I lived in a little tiny house that was adjacent from a pond. It was exactly what I needed in life. I was finally pursuing something that I really loved. And in that process, going through a program like that and a lot of the things it brings up, I think, in trying to find what your core sort of vision of your work is. Mm-hmm. I mean, I, I think in knowing about your work, mm-hmm. that there were elements of that that were also coming out. Yeah, talking about the human body, the human condition. You and I are both image makers. Mm-hmm. 
and so yeah, it was image making surrounding that concept. First year, amazing. Low pain. Going into my second year, especially in that summer, I just started having a lot of pain again, and then it just escalated day to day up until graduating. And Liz Cohen, our artist and resident at Cranbrook, was just absolutely amazing. Called me up in the middle of summer and was like, I heard you're having a really rough time right now, that you need surgery again. Going into my second year, I realized that the experimental surgery that we tried before failed and that I was going to need the hip replacement. And what kind of pain were you experiencing at that point? couldn't walk, really debilitating pain. You just get so exhausted. So if you get out of the car and you walk to the studio, that would kill me. Getting out of bed was a trial. Getting, you know, trying to feed myself was a trial. Every single movement becomes a chore. And I can imagine also, because you didn't know what the core cause of it was. That right? exacerbated it even more. Yeah. yeah, so you're trying to deal with this thing and you have no idea of if and when there's going to be an end to it. Exactly, yeah, because yeah, I'm very young for getting that. Granted, there's much worse things in the world that can happen to you, but when something is happening to you and you don't have a solution for it, and especially in the United States, we're so obsessed with finding the reason behind something mm -hmm. that sometimes you just don't ever find the reason. Something actually that you had sent my way, I was reading, it was talking about the objectification of illness. Yes. And how we're looking constantly with care providers here, some ways to show, and I think it goes back to what you were saying when you were younger too. Right. If you can't see that, then. Right. When I was in New York and they were like, we took an x-ray of your hips and they look fine. Well, a good doctor knows that that's not how medicine runs, yeah. <laughs> essentially. There's certain subsects of people who are saying, I'm not getting the proper care. Largely, it's young females. They're not believed when they go to the emergency room mm -hmm. that something has seriously happened. Doctors are not believing them. Or nurses, or even just general staff. It's like a, a cross. It's not just doctors, or parents even, in the Larry Nasser case with mm -hmm. the gymnasts. And I know that that's abuse, and I'm talking about chronic pain, but Larry Nasser was a USA Gymnastics national team doctor, and a, plenty of these young women said to their parents, I was sexually molested by Larry Nasser, and they were like, well, he's the preeminent doctor of the US gymnastics team, and they just turned a blind eye. days after graduating from Cranbrook, literally like two, two days, drove back home, had a hip replacement from the best possible hip replacement surgeon you can get in Boston. Woke up and could not move my left leg. Eventually it came back a little bit, but I had something called drop foot, which is not uncommon. And I was advised that this could possibly happen, but I have some nerve damage as a result of that. Still to this day, something wasn't quite right in that surgery. But regardless, left the hospital, some time went by and I could not reduce the amount of pain medication that I needed to take and it just kept going on and on. What um, were you taking? I was taking Dilaudid, 
if you were to do an equivalent of like a quote unquote street drug, it's like heroin essentially. And it's really at the forefront of the opioid crisis right now. Mm -hmm. A lot of people say quote unquote love, but a lot of people are addicted to Dilaudid because it is so potent, but it also is one of the few drugs that you really can properly take pain away after a joint replacement. And it's a very barbaric surgery. They use chisels and saws and you definitely need proper pain management after this. And not to say that there isn't an opioid problem now, there definitely is, but you can't send someone home with Advil or like a lower pain medication like Tramadol or Vicodin Percocet. And also that makes a lot of people sick too. Like I couldn't take Vicodin or Percocet. I start throwing up if I take it. The reason it was designed is for a very valid purpose. Valid purpose. yeah. Yeah. I was able to walk a little bit more, but the pain was just still really, really fucking bad. Sorry, really bad. You can say fucking. Okay. <clears throat> and I kept calling my surgeon and was like, hey man, <laughs> this is really painful. I went in a couple times, so on and so forth. Months would go by. I'm still taking Dilaudid at this time. And you should really only be taking Dilaudid for a very short period of time. Like it only can take a handful of days before someone develops an addiction. I mean, it depends on the different scenarios because everyone's body is different, but it doesn't take much time at all. I was taking Dilaudid, but still in a ton of pain. And I called up his, his assistant because I was leaving messages and I was really desperate at this point. And he was like, listen, you can't come in here anymore we've done all that we can and I was like but something is wrong I'm like I really think something is wrong something did not go right in the surgery and they didn't want to hear it with no recommendation about somewhere else you could go or yeah they recommended I could see other doctors I went and saw a neurologist who actually yelled at me and told me he did not know why I was there because he thought that I was trying to dig up information to use in a case against him. In a case against the surgeon. The surgeon. If you are a doctor and you speak out against another doctor who is very well respected and well known, that is career suicide. Why do you think that is? Because it's so just entangled. The whole system is not, I don't think it's built correctly. Honestly, there's not enough checks and balances. It seems that there's a lot that is involved in going through the training to get to that point, right? And mm-hmm. then you, you are part of a very exclusive club. I think it's changing, but um, it's a boys club. It was definitely nine something years ago. It was very heavily boys club. You know, so much of your career depends upon someone writing you a good recommendation. Right. If you're a resident and you want to stick around somewhere, it totally relies on the doctors that you work for saying, yes, you did a very good job Mm -hmm. and that, you know, I highly recommend you for this position that you're looking for, so on and so forth. When it comes down to that, if someone says some shit about you, then you're going to pay for it. And at this point, was your, was your mom involved in the medical? Yes. So my mom's a hospice nurse. Mm -hmm. So she was nursing until I was born and then she did some other work. And then she went back to hospice nursing a handful of years ago after the experience of my uncle Mm -hmm. um, who died from AIDS. And she saw how amazing, and I saw how amazing hospice nursing was. And so she got back into that. So you're trying to find the answer to why you're experiencing all of this pain that is above and beyond what you should be experiencing when you're Mm -hmm. recovering. Yes. And you're basically being shut down. Yes. And told that you're either an opioid seeker or that you are trying to get information for a lawsuit. Yes. 
And then what do you do? So I moved. Yeah. I moved to Los Angeles. but I was still in a lot of pain, but I was like, you know what? I got to live my life. Mm -hmm. And my career was not able to really take off like how I had wanted to at this point. And Mm -hmm. it had been like a year or two after having graduated grad school. And that can really put a damper on things for sure. Yeah. So, um, so moved to LA. I went to Cedar sinai hospital. And did you have insurance at this point? I did have insurance. I was still technically on my parents' health insurance at that time because I was still young enough to be able to. So it was really fantastic insurance because my parents had worked for years and they had a PPO plan. What does that mean? Preferred provider. Option? I'm just filling in the O. I mean, part of the reason I ask is because I think for a lot of people that there's a lot of confusion. Like, I still don't even know, you know, I know, like, your PCP is your primary care provider. So a PPO is a preferred provider organization as opposed to an HMO, which is a health maintenance organization, as opposed to an EPO, which is an exclusive provider organization, as opposed to blah, blah, blah. Like, there's a billion different substances yeah. that you can take. But they had a PPO. Which means that you have more options for specialists or is like yeah, so I did not have a primary care based in Los Angeles at the time and mm-hmm. basically as soon as I moved there I found a surgeon through just research on the internet who got a lot of really great reviews and I went and saw him PPO is that you can go straight to the specialist you don't have to be coming from your primary care doctor saying that you need to go and do this and it, you don't have to do a billion other things before going to see the specialist. Mm-hmm. So if you have like a massive problem happening or like, let's say you have MS or something, a PPO is important to mm-hmm. have because you don't have the time to be going to your primary care every time. And it's also for people who kind of know what's going on. Okay. I need to see a, someone who's going to be a bone doctor. A situation where you know you will need to have ongoing care. Exactly. Right? Yeah, and you know the type of specialist that you'll need to see. Anyway, so it's really great for people who have chronic issues happening, which I definitely was under that tier. Is that what PPOs are designed for? Is more for people in that situation? To some degree, yes. Mm -hmm. But it's also, let's say you have surgery, it has a lot more coverage for people. Say you just want like a bigger safety net because you maybe are a more sick individual. Mm-hmm. Honestly, it's a really great plan to have. And then definitely in that situation, then you're considered as a person with pre-existing condition. Yes, exactly. And so then that was also like, I think the distinction between what we had access to before mm-hmm. the ACA went into effect. Yep. That was something that had a major impact on you. Absolutely. Because everything was a pre-existing condition, but I had a PPO, so it had extreme coverage because it was under my parents' plan at the time. Thank God I was able to get this massive surgery at a really good hospital. Mm-hmm. And I wasn't just forced to go to any hospital to have the surgery because it's actually really important with hyperflexibility that you go to a doctor that really knows what they're doing. As an aside, with hyperflexibility, do you find you're easily able to do some... Tricks, some sexy moves. Yeah. 
Uh, no, it's actually the complete opposite, which is really helpful for being single right now for everyone to be hearing this. So hyperflexibility, you have some tricks like you're able to pull your thumb. So right now I'm like pulling which, it. Uh, yep, I'm seeing it. <laughs> you would think, oh, I could do splits and stuff like yeah. that. Like definitely not. That was like, the first thing my mind went yeah, to. Yeah, I know. It sounds super sexy time. It's totally not. It's a, It actually creates a complete opposite in that you become extremely stiff everything seizes a lot more you get a lot more pain not only because of the arthritis that it develops but because everything is so loosey-goosey that like your muscles are kind of what is going on right we're trying to stabilize everything here you have another surgery well you discover the surgeon yes i go and see him do not tell him who my doctor is just because you just want to avoid any of the politics involved in that or any yeah. of Yeah, well, at that time, I was kind of like knew that there was some politics involved, but I right. wasn't 100% positive. I thought I was honestly kind of crazy about it. Was there a point where you started to question pain that you were having? Yeah. And- oh, I thought I was crazy, especially when the neurologist was yelling at me. I started crying in his office. I was like, I don't know. I'm really sorry. I'm here because I'm just in a lot of pain. And did you have people to support you at that time that were thank god yeah yeah i don't think i would have made it mostly my mom and my sister yeah they believed me every single second of this and they were like this is definitely happening and you have every right to be very frustrated and when you told them you were moving to los angeles what did they think they were just like yeah yeah you should do it they're like you're gonna be great yeah champions yeah they're they're fucking sorry (laughs) they're amazing Shelter is proudly and independently produced in New York City. And this interview was recorded in February 2018 with Emily, Sarah, and her puppy Olive in Richmond, Virginia. Our music was contributed by Pascal Trummel. Find more information at erinsweeneystudio.com shelter, including links related to our conversation and the Affordable Care Act. Stay tuned for parts two and three of the series, diving deeper into Emily's story. And if you have questions or things that you'd like to hear more about, I'd love to hear from you. Until next time. bark on command but she won't she only does it every other waking second <laughs> like murphy's law literally i'm Good irish, thing we're so. on a murphy bed yeah <laughs> i'm irish so that <laughs> applies me too <laughs> you're right <laughs>